Uh, I want to first thank you all for coming, and I want to uh, say that our uh, learning tonight is for a Rufuah Shlema for Kamiya Chaya Hadas, Bas Tzipora Miriam for Kamiya Svider, and Le'ilu Nishmas, and for Lias Neshama, for Tova Gittel Bas Michal Gershon Sharon for Tova Feldstein Alea Shalom. The goal, come welcome guys, there's sheets on the table over there. And uh, make yourselves very, very welcome. There's wine, there's food. There's, uh, please make yourselves comfortable. So I, I want to um, start with the statement of purpose. And the statement of purpose over here is that um, although, we entitled, although we entitled these, uh, did we win in the end? We didn't win. We had a great experience. Yeah. <laughs> 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 that's, that's winning. Oh, gosh. Um, <laughs> all right. I left after the second quarter. I didn't. Um, a statement of purpose. The statement of purpose is, is for, uh, for us as uh, parents and, um, and, and teachers in our own right and stakeholders. There's sheets on the table over there. If you have your own book, I also have uh, my own book. Um, the books I found out were $31 a piece. The, uh, the small one is no longer in stock. We're going to get people, I, I guess, once there's a demonstration of commitment, you know, then, uh, <laughs> then, then we'll have that expenditure. Um, the purpose is, is, to get, is, to, is to bond together over learning. Um, uh, a book that for me was absolutely transformative in my life, hopefully, God willing, over the years. Uh, if I could be ambitious uh, to be able to make our way to other, bur- to other books, to other texts. It is my, uh, it's my firm belief that there's uh, source sheets uh, on the table over there. Uh, it is my firm belief um, that, um, that if you take Jewish texts seriously, if you take Jewish books seriously and Jewish knowledge seriously enough, uh, that an answer to, uh, to, almost, to almost all of life's questions are to be found in Jewish texts and Jewish books. And, uh, and, and I, am, I am a teacher, and in every way a parent is a teacher, also I'm also a parent, um, and, and now a parent of a, of a newborn as well, um, is that, is that it, it, an answer, a guide to how to deal with life's questions, to how to deal with life's thorniest issues, and to accomplish what we're, what we're seeking in every area of life can be found uh, in, in, in Jewish texts. If we take them seriously, if we learn them seriously, and if we, uh, if we give them their shrift, uh, there's uh, sheets, uh, sheets over there. Um, I'm too early. I, I, I want to be as yekish as possible. I want to respect people's time. I, it's, um, I really, really want to be respectful of people's time. Um, and, uh, and, and when it comes to parenting and teaching, um, to me, one of the most transformative books is, uh, is this one right here, the one that we're going to be diving into, which is called Chovas Talmidim, uh, a word about its author, um, which is, uh, really could be a series of classes in its own right. And uh, I, if anybody's interested, I gave a series um, in Lincoln Square Synagogue many years ago, um, and, um, and uh, I cry throughout the whole thing, so you can listen to me weep. Um, somebody, I got an email, it's like, Rabbi, you really got to like, get it out before you give the shirim. Um, so who is, who, is, who is the author of this book? Rav Kolonibus Kalma Shapiro. Um, he called himself Kalmish uh, because he was the great-grandson of the famous Maor Vashemesh, uh, who was the rabbi, the Maor Vashemesh of Krakow. And he, um, and he called himself by the diminutive, Kalmish, because he said, I don't reach my great-grandfather's ankles, so I don't want to be called by the exact same name as him. Uh, he was a scion of the greatest Hasidic families of, of Europe. Uh, his ancestors went all the way back to the, the Rebbe Rav Elimelech Milizhensk. Um, if you've ever done a heritage tour, you've probably been at his kever. It's a pilgrimage site in Europe. Uh, really the greatest names in all of Hasidic thought and, and really for all of Judaism. Um, Rav Kolonimus Kalma Shapiro, uh, he, he was 
Uh, he was born to this family. His father was a great Hasidic Rebbe in his own right, a Revelimelech of Grzysk. His father died when he was three years old. And uh, by the way, par- parenthetically, if you want, uh, I find oftentimes with great thinkers and great rabbis uh, and teachers of Torah at times um, that, that oftentimes you find people that have suffered bereavement, loss when they're very young. There's a book called Faith of the Fatherless. If you haven't read it, it's uh, highly recommended. It talks about, um, I, I assume motherless also, but people have gone through trauma at a young age and how they contend with that trauma is a transforming experience for the rest of their lives. Of Colonimus was already identified from a very young age as a prodigy, a genius, uh, but that's not where his story really begins. His story really begins because he took a tremendous interest in the education of Jewish children. He founded a yeshiva in Warsaw. Uh, there was a movement of Hasidic groups from the shtetl, uh, the small towns in the countryside you might be familiar with, from Fiddler on the Roof or something like that. And after World War I, there was a consolidation into the cities. Uh, the Polish uh, scholar of Hasidut, Marcin Wojcinski, who published recently an Atlas of Hasidut, which is a beautiful book, it's like a coffee table book, talks about this migration to, uh, to the cities and consolidation. He opened up Dot Moshe, was in a brownstone. And in this brownstone, students, unfortunately, not too many still alive. I saw a student of his in his 90s that was interviewed last year, and they put out the video on Tishabav describes a brownstone in uh, urban Warsaw. And on uh, one floor lived the rabbi and his family. On another floor was the library. On another floor was the dormitory for the students. On another floor, the kitchen and the, the cafe. Uh, and, uh, and on the last floor was the yeshiva. His entire life was dedicated to the education of Jewish children. And, and that was really uh, where he excelled. Unfortunately, that's not why he's best known. And, um, and, and I'm going to start from the end. Um, and the end, and we're going to hold it together. The end uh, comes, and, uh, and I, a little show and tell from my library. Uh, the end is, is this book. It's called Drashot Mishnot Hazam. Um, these are Torah discourses from the years of wrath, from 1939 to 1943. Uh, Rav Kolonim like the rest of Polish Jewry, was deported into ghettos, and uh, he made his way, uh, well, he was forced into the Warsaw Ghetto, and in the Warsaw Ghetto, his educational activities continued unabated. And he continued to teach. He established mikvaot there, a secret underground, and he persisted in teaching Torah on the holidays and on Shalashudas at the end of the waning hours of Shabbat. Those discourses were written down sometimes by his own hand, sometimes by his student, and they were put into manuscript form. He sincerely believed that he would have the opportunity to publish these when he survived the war. Unfortunately, even though he was uh, able to be employed in the famous shoe factory in the Warsaw Ghetto, where the VIPs were able to get a job and to survive a little bit more for another day. So he was... He was, um, along with the rest of the ghetto, he was liquidated in the harvest action and he was murdered in the Troniki uh, labor camp. The Germans saw that they were losing the war. He was executed. Uh, At the beginning of the war, he lost his son, his sister-in-law, and his mother-in-law in in an aerial bombardment. He ended up losing his wife. He lost everything before he saw it. His drashot, the reason that there's these milk cartons on the top, when he realized that he was not going to make it, when he realized that uh, this was going to be the end, he joined together with secular, secular Yiddish journalists who were also documenting the goings-on in the Warsaw Ghetto uh, in something called the Oneg Shabbos Group, which was the group of these uh, Yiddishists, playwrights, journalists who understood what was going on to them. And he put his Torah 
discourses along with some other manuscripts into those milk cartons. They were buried in the Warsaw Ghetto and the Warsaw Ghetto was raised after the uprising. Um, they were presumably lost to history until a Polish construction worker discovered them some years after the war. They were brought to Israel to his descendants who are still alive nowadays, not his children, but great-nephews, great-grandnephews. And they were published as uh, this sefer called Eish Kodesh. Eish Kodesh is, is not the name that he gave to it. He, he gave the title to his lectures as, uh, as Torah from the Years of Wrath. Professor Daniel Reiser, who published the manuscript, I'll show you what it looks like a little bit on the inside. He published uh, an academic version of the manuscript, which is true to form and includes his emendations. I mean, the emendations tell a story of itself. For example, he writes in the beginning of one of the drushas when he went over, he says, Ani, Kolonimus Kalmish, Av based in the Piazetsna. The leader of the Beit Din of Piazetsna, I want to be clear, I'm going to try and translate as much of everything, but I will stay also in a statement of purpose, stop me. And, and, and if something isn't clear, if I, or if I start to, to rabbi something, like fudge over it because it doesn't make sense to me, stop me and challenge also. Um, we see, for example, two years later, he crossed it out uh, and he said, Eneno, Piazetsna is, lo- is, uh, is no longer, Piazetsna doesn't exist anymore. And in another drasha, for example, he writes and he talks about, he gives chizuk strength to people. And he says, you know, Jewish people, we've been through so much worse. And uh, we've been through destructions of temples and we have to have faith and we have to be able to persist. And eventually he goes ahead and he adds a, an emendation to it. He says, I don't think that there's any, ever been anything quite like what we're experiencing right now. And... Um, and uh, his discourses were published again in Israel and become a modern classic. Uh, and through that, his educational writings from before the war have been discovered as well. Um, uh, professor Nehemia Polen, Rabbi Professor Nehemia Polen of Boston University, who's the scholar who spent most time engaging uh, with his works and who's translated. He's, uh, he's uh, a really, I've had the opportunity to meet him, an incredibly uh, cool Jew. And, um, and he, he said that when he was studying the works of the Piazetsna for his doctoral dissertation, he said, you know the feeling when you look at the sun too long and you burn your retinas by staring at the sun? He said, by looking at the works of the Piazetsna for the sustained engagement that he had in writing his dissertation, he said he felt like I was looking at the opposite of the sun. I was staring into a deep abyss to the point that I was no longer able to see anything more. He said that when you study, for example, when you study this in depth, um, it, it does something profound to you. And he said that this is since the works of Job, since Eov, there has been no greater sustained engagement with what it means for a person experiencing, for a Jew experiencing suffering in real time than the Piazetz the Rebbe's writings of 1939 to 1943 in the Warsaw Ghetto. So that's the kind of individual we're talking about. But let's back up and go before it. The first book that we're going to be learning which means a student's obligation. You have uh, this book I, I copied. Please don't tell Feldheim. We're going to get those books from Yerzah Hashem. Uh, that's why we don't record, right? Um, there's the English is there for everybody on the side and side by side. I'll be translating every word. It's part of a trilogy of educational books. And the Piazetzna in running the yeshiva, he had a challenge before him that was the challenge of Jewry in the interwar period, which was that there were many isms 
that were coming up that were challenging what we would now call the traditional Jewish way of life. Now, I say the traditional Jewish way of life because what we term, uh, for example, orthodoxy is a complete invention. It's something that's a complete invention in modernity. What we mean traditional way of life is that we mean the way that Judaism was taught from parents to their children in real time, what we call the mimetic tradition, uh, as Professor Soloveitcher called it. You saw your parents doing something and you did what your parents did and you didn't read it out of a book. And this was the way the Jewish life was practiced and, uh, and was kept and passed over from generation to generation with communism, with Zionism, with all of the movements that came up and this consolidation in the interwar period. There were many students who previously would have been going through a Jewish educational system from birth until it came time to uh, lug the water up in the pails from the well or to, or to pull the cart behind them. It was, that was the only option. Many, many students were seen to be leaving the Hasidic way of life, to be leaving what was the traditional way of life and going off and, uh, and being enamored of these movements. Piazetzner had uh, an approach that was shocking to many people. His approach said, it's not because of the way that we're doing things, it's because we're doing it wrong. And the answer is, is that our educational system, the way that we're teaching children is not fulfilling their needs. And it itself is the cause of their going off of this path of faithfulness to Judaism. And, and what I want to say is that when I'm, even though he's located in, an, in a call to tradition, in a call to observance, and in a call to what might be derech avosenu, the way of our fathers, the way that I understand this book in 2023, is that this also has to do with the way that we look at our children of every single background of what does it mean to be part and parcel of the Jewish people and to put yourself and to say that my fate is the fate of the Jewish people. And to, to see this as we learn through and to understand its context, to understand that we're bringing this into the broadest possible context of what it means to love Torah, to love the Jewish people, to love performance and mitzvot, and ultimately to be a kind, caring, human being who shines light upon the world as every Jew is supposed to do. That was the first book. After this book, he wrote another book called Hachshara Savreichen. That's this book over here. Hachshara Savreichen was meant for the next stage. This is meant for school children. And Avreich is a student who thereupon becomes married. It's a different stage in life, and there was different instruction meant for those people. That was the next stage in the trilogy. At the end is a book called Mavosh Sha'arim, and there was supposed to be a Chovat Avreichim, another book just like this, for young marrieds, for people starting Jewish families. Professor Reiser contends that it was never written, it was never composed. We have some chapters that were also buried in the Ringelblum archive in that milk carton. And afterwards, there's also an unbelievable work which has been translated, uh, Rabbi Andrea, I forgot her name, she wrote it as her doctoral dissertation. She translated Savu Zerus, which is his spiritual biography. His spiritual biography is wild, wild reading. He talks about, for example, being in a circle dancing on, um, on Simcha's Torah and weeping while carrying the Torah and finding himself in what we would now term like a completely hallucinatory state of, of complete ecstasy. And he writes about this with, with, with intensity. And you'll see his, his Hebrew writing, his locution is beautiful, modern, beautiful, uh, gorgeous, progressive. Uh, he writes things that, uh, that, that, that could, could be ripped from an educational paper uh, written in uh, Harvard Graduate School of Education nowadays or posted on Edutopia nowadays. Uh, if you click on the links on the, uh, on the In the Bobcat's Den of our Torahs, you know, you'll see what I'm talking about. <laughs> Plug for that. Finally, the last book that was, that was published is this small book. It's called B'nai Machshava Tova. B'nai Machshava Tova 
is, um, is about a conscious community. What happens when I leave the environs of yeshiva? What happens when I leave the environs of Jewish day school? When I move on, when I move past college, when I'm in a working world and choosing a community? What does it mean to find a conscious community where everybody joins together and says, we have purpose here. We might say our purpose is chesed. We might say our purpose is to teach our kids to, uh, to know all of tefillah. We might say our purpose is to get our children to, um, to all become, you know, math Olympiad, gold medalists, whatever it is. We say that this is our goal. What does it mean to be conscious as a community? This book has become a lodestar for people, um, and it was a secret society. It's literally a handbook of, uh, I'll give you an example of one of the things he talks about. He says that all of us sin. Everybody sins. And, uh, and what happens is, is that we keep that sin suppressed. We keep that sin within ourselves. We feel terrible, right? I said... Lush and hara about this person. I spoke evil speech, gossip about this particular person, or I uh, or I skimmed a little bit off on a, on a fiduciary responsibility. I wasn't quite as careful with other people's money as I should have been. Uh, whatever it is, and we suppress it, we hide it, and we keep it to ourselves. And ultimately, we don't eradicate that kind of negative, deleterious behavior. In the name of the Yishkodesh says, the Piazetz, the Rebbe says that you have to go ahead and you have to speak it out to other people. It might sound very familiar because this idea is almost completely in consonance with the tenets of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, that you gather together with other people and other people tell you that this is how you should be strengthened. This is how we, all of us, failed, broken people struggling through life with everything, screaming at our kids and trying to, and and screaming at people at work and screaming internally at ourselves, a lot of screaming. All of us, when we go through life and all of its difficulties and all of the punches that life throws at us, we could use a little help. We could get by with a little help from our friends. B'nai Machshav Tova is a guidebook, a handbook for how exactly to achieve a conscious community like that. That was the trilogy. There were more books that were meant to be written. There are some people that contend that the Ish Kodesh was resigned to his fate and he died. Of course, he died a heroic death. The Ish Kodesh fully intended to see to it that these books would be, public, uh, that would be published. And I'm just going to read you from the introduction over here, which uh, you don't have. It's not in the English version. And this is from the, um, this is from, uh, I guess, the, the first page, right? So he has the manuscripts in the Ring of archive rolled up together in the first page. I wonder if he has it over here so you can see exactly what he, what he says. First of all, here's a picture of him. There's a picture of him. That's the Piazetzna, that's the Rebbe. And uh, he has, he, he says, attention in the front of it. And this attention is, uh, once it was buried, to anybody that finds it. Attention, he says. And in this attention, he tells us, so this is the first page, you could see the notebook, he says, Colonimus, that's what he calls himself. Attention, he says, and he says, Whoever finds this should endeavor to share this with all Jewish people. I'm telling everybody, please learn my books. Please, I put everything, you could assume he's put his entire energy, effort, all of his humanity into these writings. And for sure, the merit of my sainted ancestors, and, his, and the Kajnat Rebbe, his father-in-law, these people should stand in our stead. Hopefully by us learning this today, that their brachos, that their blessings should, should devolve upon us in our work, in parenting, and in teaching. They should come upon us. He says, Hashem should have mercy on us. He says, I cannot write anymore. Hashem Yerachim, Hashem should have mercy on us. V'yichayenu, should keep us alive in She'er Yisrael with the remnant of the Jewish people. V'ezke gamani l'shtad v'ad pasasam. 
And I too should merit to be part of their printing as well. So this is the kind of individual whose work we're going to be studying. That's a short, short introduction. We could spend so much time talking about the Piazetzner, his Torah discourses, for example, more show and tell. His Torah discourses, many of his students uh, found other manuscripts from before the war, from the lectures he gave in Dat Moshe. They published it in Derech HaMelech. There's descriptions in here from students of being called into the quote-unquote principal's office and meeting with him, what it was like to meet with him. This was a person that his educational struggles, his educational concerns, what he understood is the job of parents and teachers to do is, is profound and deep. Welcome, welcome, come. I think there, there are seats. There, there's a... There's um, uh, source sheets on the table over there. You're very, very welcome. Nobody touched the fruit platter. I'm furious. I'm furious. Okay. All right. L'chaim. Okay. So, so like this. The book starts off with a, um, an introduction. An introduction is called Anywhere is Good. The introduction says, Siach im hamalamdim sabanim. A conversation with teachers and with parents. Constantly, when we write the Divrei Torah that we sent out, the Torah words we send out, I personally put together parents and teachers in the same boat. The act of parenting is an act of teaching, and the act of teaching is an act of parenting. The Talmud tells us that anybody that teaches another person's child Torah is as if they are it's as if they've given birth to them. And when I say this to students, they give me a very, very strange look. They're like, uh, every, every once in a while I mess up and, and Mr. Giver seen me do this. I'm not going to pick on you like I did on Shabbos. On, on Shabbos we gave a shear and, 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 and Mr. Giver had, had the, uh, the, the poor luck of sitting in the front row and I used him as, a, as an example for other things. But, but he's heard me do this and will say, well, we'll let slip, I love you to students. Unfortunately, our world is sick. And that's something the students aren't used to hearing, but a teacher should feel love for students. That what, what that means, and we're going to get, he gets into it, what that means is that what happens to these students is as if what happens to their children. The more than an educator, the more than a Jewish educator, although I think that this is true to some extent of somebody that's teaching somebody else's kid's math, or somebody that's teaching somebody else's kid English, and understanding what that means for a child's success in the future, and what that means for the ability to contribute to the world, is that what happens to those children is as if it's happening to my own children. The more that an educator believes that, the more successful the educator will be. By the way, the more agamas nefesh, the more strife that educator will feel in their work because they're putting their heart and soul into it. I always tell teachers that I train, I say, don't take it personally, right? It's, you know, the truth is, is that there's no further thing for a good teacher. Everything is taken personally because your whole heart and soul, you have 20 children in front of you that right now, and even legally, you are in loco parentis. You are standing in the stead of their parents who have been entrusted to teach them. Rabbi Yeshua ben Gamlin, the times of the Gemara, established yeshivot for students in the Galilee because even though the Torah has a primary commandment to parents to teach their children well, even though we must teach our children, vishinantam levanecha, you must teach your children well, Unfortunately, we have to earn a living. Unfortunately, not everybody has the great merit of being uh, an educator, of being a teacher, which is a great merit. Not everybody has the merit to do that. So parents, Jewish parents, and parents all over the world entrust their children. I mean, think about what a crazy thing that you do. You take your children, you say, for more time than I am going to see you, 
on a daily basis, I'm going to put you in the care of educators and administrators and, and everybody that goes and makes the school work, and I'm going to trust you with the raising of my child. It is an insane leap of faith. The only reason I think that people just do it every single day or that I do it every single day is because life is so fast-paced and difficult that we don't even get to contemplate what exactly we're sending our kids off to. And that's why all of the difficulties, all of the tensions between educators and parents are there because whenever I have this, and, and it happens often, no matter what your best intentions are, is because you recognize that the people that you're dealing with is that you're, you're essentially a, a kind of spouse. You're a partner in the most important, precious thing in a parent's life, their children. So the Ishkoda starts off this book with a conversation. Have a seat. Let's talk before we get into this. And this conversation lays out his, his primary focus, what the goal of the book is, what his foundational ideas are for the book, and that's what we're going to start tonight. And uh, again, I, the, this siyach is about 29 pages long. Um, although I said, and I, I wrote in that we can finish this entire book. There's also something important, having a sense of accomplishment. Rabbi Eitan Feiner, who was one of my rabbis, told us, you need to finish books. You need to finish books. You need to read. He told us, maybe this was a tall order because he's a genius and he could do this, but he said, you need to finish books. You need to read them cover to cover. You need to read the approbations in the front. You need to read the index. You need to see where it was published. You need to know everything about this book. So we're going to try. We're going to make our way slowly. Obviously, I'm going to do my best to read the room as well. But we're going to jump right into it now. Our goal is that by learning this statement of purpose that we start off, by learning this, we could, become, we could become more sensitive parents, we could become more sensitive educators, and we could do so by locating ourselves in foundational Jewish texts written by holy people, written by people who, who we can be certain we're not concerned about any ulterior motives. I, Joshua Rosenfeld, have ulterior motives. I want to be successful. I want people to like me. I want to have a good career. I want to make sure that, you know, all my emails are answered and, and, that, uh, and that the school is successful. I have ulterior motives. Unfortunately, it's not always directed towards God. I'm thinking about much more mundane things. Pia Zetzner was not thinking like that. Pia Zetzner was fully dedicated and committed to the goal that he outlines in this book, which was the education and perfection of his students and bringing them towards meaningful Jewish lives. Okay. Let's start. Shlomo HaMelech Amar Mishle. So Solomon wrote in Mishle, in Proverbs, You must teach children according to their path so that when they get older, they do not deviate from it. Does they, is the English, uh, I'm, not, I'm not reading directly from that, just if it says something better, stop me. I'm, I, I was... Uh, I'm trying to start, but I was telling Mr. Giver uh, when he first came in, this book, I, the first time I learned this was about 19 years ago. Wow. Uh, 19 years ago in Yeshivara Kotel, Shanabet, uh, we were about eight boys, and we learned, uh, we learned with Rabbi Ari Heller, who ended up becoming, even though he wasn't my Rebbe at the time, he learned this book with us. I still see that I have notes over here. I'll show you what a typical page looks like in my book. That's a typical page. My notes are in, in, in pencil, which means that it was a very, very long time ago because now I'm, now I'm all arrogant and write in pen. But, but we learned this then. It, Rabbi Heller was a perfect example of this. He ended up becoming like a surrogate parent to the Chayalim Bodedim, to the lone soldiers. Um, he, would, he would cook us meals. He would drive us to bus stops. Um, and, and he really, he became like a parent his own way. So it's amazing that the person that taught me this book for the first time embodied and encapsulate many of the teachings it has. Shlomo Melch told us, You must teach a child according to their path, so that even when they grow older, 
Not when they get older, but as they grow older, lo yasurimena, they do not deviate from it. We're going to get much more into what this means, but this is, I would say, the lodestar of everything that comes afterwards. If the Piazetsner was locating his philosophy, his educational and his parenting philosophy, in one place, it's on this very verse. What does it mean to teach a child according to the path? He says, This is the foundation, the main part of education. Not just when a child is a child, when they're young, when they're innocent, when they're sweet. And their parents are in control of them. They could ground them. They could tell them when to go out. They could tell them that they know they still can't get a cell phone yet. And no, you can't watch another episode of Paw Patrol. You tell them it's not just when you have control. And we're going to come back to control. And he uses the word tekifa. Force, right? There is a kind of forcefulness that comes, you know, every once in a while you say, either you're going to go upstairs or I'm going to carry you up to bed. You know, one way by hook or by crook, you're going to go to sleep, right? It's not just when we have control over them, that our children listen to us and that our children do what we tell them to do. But even when your children grow older and they're still in your house, Usually that line, you're still in my house, comes when something very bad is happening. You're in my house, you're under my roof, right? I don't think anything good has ever been said with under my roof at the end of it. <laughs> the goal is that even when they grow older, even when they start to leave the home, when they start to become more independent, when they go for that first sleepover, when they, when they get that cell phone, when they get their first boyfriend or girlfriend, when they go off to, when they go off to gap year or go off to college for the first time, when they spend their first couple of weeks away from home, the goal of your teaching, the goal of your parenting, the goal of your education is that the messages that you give at home stay with them even at that point. That it's still as, as clear as day to them that this was the teaching that I got from them. This is what my family does. This is, this is, this is what my education was all about. Because he's going to explain that if it only happens when they're in front of you, if that education only happens, or if your children doing what, what you want them to do, or what you, what you assume is best for them only happens when they're directly in front of you, you will be failing at your job as a parent and educator. And how to do that is something he's going to get into, but he's going to outline the issues first. Even as they grow older, they don't leave it. Education is not about commanding children. Parenting is not about commanding children. They tell my child or I tell my student, do this or do that. And it's also not about rote. It's not about saying, get used to this. This is the only thing you're going to know and this is the only thing you're going to do. And by the way, this is like, even with uh, brushing teeth, uh, unfortunately, you know, I guess... I love my parents very much. They didn't do a good job of teaching me to brush my teeth, and my dentist can tell you that, right? It's like when they're around, I brush my teeth because they said, Josh, for God's sakes, just brush your teeth already. But, you know, if I was lazy, this might be a little bit gross. If I was lazy or if I was rushing, I'd say, you know, I'm not going to be talking too close to anybody today. And, uh, you know, I, it's too late or I'm too tired. That was a failure of education of me brushing teeth. Part of teaching me to brush teeth was telling me why it was important to brush teeth. And why I don't want to be sitting in a dentist chair getting my 15th root canal of my adult life. That was part of the chinuch as well. So it's not about, education is again, it's not about commanding people. It's not about getting them to do things by rote or to do things just because 
you know, this is what they stick with. Shemar gilasos masim tovim. Okay, good. You did a good thing. You get a star. And now you're used to doing a good thing. Because that's what he says at the outset. That's not going to last. That's not what we mean by education. It's not what we mean by parenting. Next paragraph. Yoter gadol yoter pa'el min hergel No. Chinuch is greater than both of these things. Chinuch means something more, more. Education means something deeper and more profound than these things. It's not about commanding and it's not about rote memorization. Ushnei Eila, these two things, Hatsivoy Vahahergel, commandment and getting people to do things by habit or by rote, Rak Klei Tashmi Shohim. Those are only the tools. Those are only part of the toolbox for the educator and for the parent. There's certainly room for this. Right, a star chart certainly has its place. And telling them, this is what you must do now, certainly has its place. But that is not all of it. It cannot be all of it. It has to be part of what we would term a holistic picture of parenting. <laughs> in order to teach a child what it means to walk in the ways of God, what it means to be a proud Jew, what it means to be a Jew who cares about the world, who cares about his nation, who cares about, who cares about being a good person, who, who, who fulfills the goal, I think, of every, of every Jewish education, which is that every child goes out, of our school at least, and understands their role in the world is to make it better, is to sanctify the name of God that people look and say, what, imagine that child's education, imagine that child's parenting, imagine what those parents did to make the child look like this. You know, it's why we would take our keepers off when we were doing something bad when we were younger. You know? so, nobody knows that we're Jewish, of course. Not at all. Right? But it's to go ahead and to say that this, this is what our education is about. This is how we better the world in this. That's what, we're, that's what our goal is. The word chinuch in Hebrew is a unique word. It's an interesting word. Mefarish Rashi. Rashi says, The Torah tells us about somebody that... Is, the Torah is describing people that are going out to war. And the Torah describes people that receive exemptions from going out to war. So some of the people that receive exemptions, three types. So somebody that just got married is exempt from going out to war. Or somebody that planted, interestingly enough, somebody that planted a, uh, a vineyard is, uh, is exempt from going out to battle. And the final person is a person that built a new home and didn't establish what we call a Hanukkah Tabayit. Chanukah Tabayit, you know, a cornerstone laying ceremony. This is the house. We're now moving into it. Uh, may it be on the bicultural gym. Emir Tzashem, you know, I can't wait for that. That is called the Chinuch Bayit, And that person is exempt. That person who built a new house is exempt from going out to battle. Chinuch, Rashi tells us, is Lashon Hatchala. What it really means is not education. What it really means is somebody that is starting something. Something that is at its initial, nascent stages. To put this into actionable terms, that means that looking at every single day with your child, looking at every single day with your class, and saying this is the first day I'm ever with them. That whatever happened last night, that whatever happened in class yesterday, that whatever happened moments before, I'm starting every instance, every instance of teaching, every instance of parenting, of course, of course, you don't forget. You don't, have, you, don't, you don't have to be an amnesiac, but you understand that it's something new. And every instance of teaching is something new. I'll give you an example. And I want to be very practical, and I know we're moving slowly, but I want to be really practical that this goes, jumps off the page. Today, I had to, um, 
there were two students and um, there were two students that did something that was disrespectful. It happens. It happens. They did something that was disrespectful to a teacher. It wasn't big. A teacher had asked them to stop talking once, twice, three times. And by the fourth time, the teacher naturally said, you know, you need to go speak to uh, Mr. Giver. And Mr. Giver was the busiest man in the school. So I, uh, I, I saw them and I said, why are you waiting in this office? And they told me, I said, we accidentally were talking. I said, please. <laughs> I, and and I, I, I talked like this with students. I, I think that students deserve to be spoken to as directly and as maturely as we would speak to our peers, right? When we treat them with maturity, they, they actually act like that, even, even when at the moment we have to make as if we're disappointed with their behavior. They're children, right? You have to remember always underneath whatever I'm displaying externally to teach them, these are children. And whatever they did, I, you know, I'm very lucky, I did 10 times worse. <laughs> and to remember what that felt like in their position. And, and, and I talked to them about what respect means. And I said to them in the following words, I said, oh, it happened to have been a, a Judaics class. I said, all of the Torah that you're learning, the psukim, the kriya that you're doing, to me, is so much less important than the way that you show respect to a teacher. You might as well throw it out. That's as harsh as I got. You might as well throw it out if you cannot show respect to a teacher. I expect you fully to go ahead and to give a real apology, a heartfelt apology. And I'm going to ask the teacher if you did that. I'm not going to watch you. I'm not going to walk you over. I'm, I expect to hear from the teacher afterwards that you did that. And you have a moment with the student that you might feel, I put a wall between myself and the student right now. You know, maybe I, I don't have a relationship with this student anymore. Or I've shut something down. But you better believe that my mentors told me that you find those students before the end of that day and you make sure you have at least two, three positive interactions with them. Brand new, something completely brand new. To let them know that it's not in a vacuum. It's not because I want them to follow certain rules or they have to stay in line or they have to be a lockstep all the time with exactly what their expectations are. Children, (laughs) we all know they're not gonna meet our expectations, right? Maybe not ever. Maybe our expectations are misplaced. But if you don't understand that that comes through a relationship, you don't understand that comes with a holistic approach, you don't make that connection later on in the day, then whatever I said to them before, even if they went and apologized, would have been a failure. It's not going to accomplish what I intend for it to accomplish, which is ultimately to get students to recognize a teacher and to be respectful and to understand that respect comes before learning Torah. That's the educational message. That's going to be more important than the, than the psukim, than the verses that they're going to forget, to, you know, uh, a month later, two months later. They'll come back to it later on in life. Lo That's chinuch. Not commanding, not doing by rote, but creating a relationship and saying every moment of a relationship is a brand new moment. We find this with spouses. We find this with, with coworkers. We find this with people. You could have something hard. You could have something difficult if you're not able to start anew. If you're not able to say, okay, that moment happened, I acknowledge that, I recognize that I'm going to go and I'm going to move to something else right now. If you don't establish that kind of continually renewed relationship, you're not going to be successful. And by the way, this is a relationship we try to establish with God. At the end of the Megillah, of Eicha, that we recite on Tisha B'Av, recounting the destruction of the temple on the saddest day of the Jewish calendar, there's one line that we repeat everybody Again and again. It's actually a paradox. We say, 
Hashivainu Hashem Elechav Nashuva Hadeshameinu. Return to us, O God, and we will return to you. Renew our days like the days of old. It's a paradox. Renew my days like the days of old. What that means, I think, is that even when we find the relationship that has been crushed, broken, we're exiled, we've suffered death and destruction, certainly the Piazetsna knew what that was all about. But we understand that there's an opportunity for constant renewal that can occur in that space as well. Constant renewal, chinuch, constant renewal, constant restarting again and again and again. And you might feel exhausted. I have told you 15 times to pick up your laundry. I have told you 20 times not to talk in class. I've told you that, that, that when it's a fire bell, that you have to be quiet outside. It's safety. If you're not able to restart, then look and say that this is a constant process that is constantly renewed. Chadesh yameinu kikedem, a constant hitchadshut. It ain't going to work. And that's why the Piazetzer, by the way, later on, and we're going to see probably uh, next week, he says the most important trait of any educator, of any parent. Do you guys want to take, anybody want to take a guess? The most important trait, he says, is? Patience. Yeah. Starts, starts with the P. We all know. Patience. Patience. If you do things impetuously, if you do things thinking only about this particular moment in time, and you act impetuously without, without mindfulness, you'll do damage to yourself, to the student, to your child. It's the job of parents, the job of teachers, the job, it's the trust between parents and teachers to assume that the people that, that our children are, are learning from have patience, know what it means to be a child. It's interesting that a lot of these ideas also find, uh, find their, their expression in the writings of another amazing Jew, but not in the language of Hasidic Judaism, in the language of, of uh, humanistic Judaism, Janusz Korczak. Anybody ever heard of Janusz Korczak? Janusz Korczak uh, was, uh, if you go to the Holocaust Museum, the U.S. Holocaust Museum, there's uh, an entire section about Janusz Korczak. Uh, a lot of the ideas that the Piazetsin was discovering and espousing, espousing in his writings find expression um, in a completely secular, although it's, you know, Janusz Korczak was a Jew. There's no such thing. There's no such thing. The Jewish soul, right? He found, found expression there. These progressive ideas of what it means to look as a child, as a child, with that kind of sweetness and innocence that child deserves, find expression there also. I want to make sure I'm good on time. I have four more minutes left. I promised I wasn't going to take. I said to 9.30, I had 45 minutes I've been told is, is the absolute cap. And um, let's, let's do one or two more lines. So we'll start with that third paragraph. The meaning of this word, somebody that one, one who builds a house and doesn't, Inaugurated. Chinuch means hatchala. Chinuch means beginning. Upashit. And it is simple and clear. Shalom alkola atchala yamar lashon chinuch. The word chinuch doesn't apply to every beginning because there's beginnings that education is just not relevant to. For example, paradoxically, the greatest uh, Jewish educational experience, the Seder on Passover, we start with the misery of Mitzrayim. That's called the beginning. We don't want education to be misery. We, I hope not. It, it's hard. Hard challenge is different than misery. But when we tell the story of the Jews in Egypt, it starts with misery. So that's not the hatchala that we're talking about. Talked about in the connection to the Seder on Passover. We don't tell teachers that you need to. It doesn't have to. By the way, it could actually, it could, you always should leave over the possibility that it could be sweet and good. Right? And, and I, one of the things that I tell all the teachers that I coach, catch them being good. Catch your kids being good. 
Don't just focus if, if your contact is only on points where you have to correct, correctly, rightfully so, issue a corrective or issue some sort of uh, guidance on something, be it laundry or finishing food or putting away dishes or, or, um, or, not, uh, or not hitting your sister. I don't know. Um, nothing to do with my own, uh, my own parenting experience at all. Whatever it is, it doesn't have to be like that. Catch them being good. Find those moments. You, if your, your children will realize this, kids are far more perceptive than we think they are to these things. They see and hear everything. I mean, it's axiomatic. If they see that you're only pointing out or only interacting with them intently and focused way when things are not great, when you need to correct something, they're going to shut you down because they say that's all you see. Don't you see when I shared my toys? Don't you see, don't you see when I... When, when, I, when I cleaned up the dishes? Didn't you see how I, how I, how I went over to a friend? It's something we started this year in school also, and, and we're, we're actually, we just had a meeting, we're gonna talk about this more. I grew up with Nachas notes in, in uh, Hebrew Academy of Long Beach. Our, our principal, the principal I grew up with was a Holocaust survivor. He got it. He understood what the preciousness of Jewish to make them feel good. I also got, they also had pink slips. That was separate. Uh, <laughs> that was a separate thing. But, Catch him being good and point out in those moments, chinuch doesn't have to be all bad, all challenging. Find those beautiful moments and capitalize on those moments and say, I see you. I see what you just did over there. That's awesome. Keep that up. If you balance out, right, so you start to find that even your experience of how you're educating or how you're parenting will be something that's far more gratifying than just focusing. All I do is talk to my child about things that I, that I want to see from them that they're just not doing. And you could, you could lead an entire existence as a teacher, as a parent, where that's all you see. That's misery. That's not what chinuch is, says the Piazetzner. And also, chenitz la Sanhedrin, by the great Jewish court, which was fashioned as a semicircle. Um, there's an amazing essay by the French philosopher Emmanuel Levinas in his, uh, in his nine Talmudic readings, where he talks about the beauty of arranging a court where every single judge, every single adjudicant can see each other and understand and hear each other as they're issuing judgment. I mean, it's beautiful. The verse that's cited is the proof text in the Talmud for the reason that the Sanhedrin, the Jewish court, was, uh, was arranged like that actually comes from the greatest love song. Uh, think about this court. High court, Supreme Court, is associated with the love song of Shira Shir, right? Anyway, he says that, that in the Sanhedrin, we start from the side. The reason we start from the side is because the most novice judges speak first. Chinuch doesn't mean starting from the side. It doesn't mean starting with nothing. It means that you could be full force and full effort from the very beginning. Hatchalat doesn't mean we start with the weakest. One more line over here. Rashi tells us when it comes to the very first Jew, that's where we find the real etymology, the real meaning of the word of Chinuch, by Avraham Avinu. Avraham Avinu was the first Jew, the first person to recognize God as the unique individual creator of heavens and earth underwent a period of questioning and search also, which I think is significant. And Avraham said when he left, the Torah says about Avraham that when he and Sarah, still as yet childless, left and went on their way by Lechlecha, childless at the time, says, The Pasuk says, Avram took 318 souls. The Torah says, the souls that they made in Haran. The Mepharshim say these were the people that they taught. These are people that Avram and Sarah with their open tent said, here, 
Let me show you what ethical monotheism looks like. Let me show you what a life of belief in God and, 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 and not paganism. Let me show you what that looks like. These were the souls that they made. When I was uh, selling, um, when I was trying to recruit a teacher last year in the summer, the word that I used in a phone call, Hani was in the car when I did this, I said, you will make nefesh. He wasn't sure if he wanted to, to come to our school or even to, to go ahead and to try out teaching. Scary. I said, you will make nefashas. If you work hard, you will be responsible for Jewish souls. You will be responsible. It's a huge, huge responsibility, but you will have the greatest joy of my life to be invited to the wedding of a student from my years in SAR, to, to conduct their weddings, and to say I had, little Josh Rosenfeld had, had an opportunity to help shape a Jewish soul, like a parent. I mean, it's the most rewarding, gratifying experience ever. I don't know what it's like to uh, sell a company. Maybe that feels, maybe that feels, maybe that feels kind of nice also. But, but I, I, I doubt that outside of family experiences, I doubt that there's any more gratifying professional experience than, than to have students that come back to you. A student was at this farm sale with Sophia and, uh, and a student came up to me and said, you know, Rabbi Rosenfeld, I'm going to, I said, you know, what, what are you doing? What are you up to? He said, I'm going to, uh, I'm starting smicha this year. I said, Really? He said, he said, yes, and he referenced a conversation we had in the Beit Midrash at SAR High School 10 years ago that I did not remember. So I'm looking, I'm, it, right? It's breathtaking. That's breathtaking. That's what Chinuch is. Avraham's students were called Chanichav. Shechancha He taught them what it was to live ethical, moral lives, to detach themselves like Avraham did from the milieu that they were in and to move to something greater. We'll finish with this line. Chinuch means that we initiate the person, that we constantly renew with the person and bring them into experiences and into understandings that will stay with them for the rest of their lives. That's what it means to parent. That's what every, you know, no big deal. That's what it means to parent every single day. That's what it means to teach every single day. And hopefully together with uh, what will hopefully be... Um, less me talking and more of a circle situation. I don't, I don't want this to go one direction. It's another thing we tell teachers. If, if it, a classroom is actually a way of uh, assessing teachers when I do an observation uh, where you draw arrows, speech arrows in class. So you'll have, you literally draw a diagram of the class. Here's the desk of the teacher. Here's where the teachers are. And you show a teacher afterwards and, and you'd be shocked because sometimes teachers don't even know. You're so focused on teaching and making sure that you're managing and you show them, here was the line of speech. Here's where the information flow is in the classroom. What you want to see is students responding to students. Does anybody want to respond to that? Does anybody want to challenge what I just said? Does anybody want to piggyback on top of that? When you start to get those hours, you show a teacher how that looks. Whoa, that's a classroom that's dynamic and exciting and explosive. And, di- and, and, and there's fireworks going off of learning in there. So I don't want, I don't want this to be like that. Um, and uh, we'll stop here. We'll stop here. We did an introduction to the Piazetzner. Anybody that wants to uh, learn more about the Piazetzner, I could send you a link to, uh, to, uh, to those classes I gave. I'm very happy uh, for feedback on that also um, and give you the videos and links to everything. Um, and I just, uh, 